Hope you guys don't mind. I'm going to take a quick drink. <laughs> All right, so today's Youth Sunday, um, and we are going to continue on in our uh, study of the book of Luke. So last week we were in Luke 13. Jared Cole was here, um, and you can go back and listen to that one because it was phenomenal. But we're going to continue on in Luke 14 today, so if you want to turn your Bibles there. Um, while I was preparing this message, I, kn- I knew I was going to be talking about humility, and um, so I was talking to Randy Shaver, actually, if you know Randy, um, <clears throat> and he just was like, oh, we, we need to talk about this. And, and so I asked him if I could quote him, because after we talked about it, he had, a, he had a good quote, and he said, humility should be something we all desire and pursue. The last should be first, the first should be last. So <clears throat> as we're digging into Luke 14 here, we'll hear how Jesus taught the Pharisees and us just how important humility is. So let's pray before we get into it. God, thank you so much for this word. I pray that you would be speaking through me, that it would be your spirit, none of my words, but they'd be all yours, and you help me to teach this passage well. So we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so we're going to start right in at verse 1 here. Luke 14, verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went in to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, They were watching him closely. There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. He took the man, healed him, and sent him away. And to them he said, which of you whose son or ox fell into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? They They could find no answer to these things. So again, today we're going to be talking about humility, and in this passage here in in the first six verses, Jesus calls out the Pharisees' pride. He calls them to humility. Now, if you know anything about the Pharisees, you know that they are law experts, right? They, a lot of them, all of them, started memorizing the Torah or the first five books of the Bible when they were about six years old, and they had it memorized by the time they were 10. So the level of uh, understanding of, of those, that law is way up here. And then if they go further than that, then it's kind of like a secondary school. And then if they do well in that, they become at this level of, of being a Pharisee. <clears throat> and so the Pharisees intended to trap him in this because they feel like they're the experts and Jesus is kind of making them jealous <laughs> in, in how well he knows things. Um, And the other thing that you need to know about the Pharisees is that they took God's law and they kind of made up their own rules with it. They found a bunch of loopholes and they did things that weren't necessarily against God's law, but they also kind of helped to fill in the gaps where they didn't see God's law being as specific as it maybe could be. Or for whatever reason, they decided to make up their own rules. And so I went to gotquestions.com or .org and And they shared this. They said, Pharisees' Sabbath restrictions forbade the following activities. Writing, erasing and tearing, conducting business transactions, shopping, cooking, baking, or kindling a fire, gardening, doing laundry, carrying anything for more than six feet in a public area, (laughs) uh, moving anything with your hand, even indirectly, like with a broom, a broken bowl, flour in a vase, candles on a table, raw food, a rock, (laughs) <laughs> a button that has, been, that has fallen off, 
Uh, you can move these things with your elbow or your breath, but not with your hand. <laughs> so that was the law was that you couldn't move it with your hand. So they found a loophole. They said if you pick it up with your elbows or you blow it with your, your mouth and you're trying to move it with your breath, then it's fine. And again, this is just a partial list. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't look at this and as a youth pastor see an opportunity. So this is obviously a game, right? So we're going to play this game. I need two adult male volunteers. Anybody? Raise your hand. Chris. Yes. Hey, great. I don't know. Anybody? Anybody? Yes. Awesome. One more. need one more dude. What? You're not strong enough? Oh, okay. <laughs> Way to go, guys. All right, so here's how this game's going to work. Yeah, just down, down here. So if you see these basketballs are on the cones, they're there for a reason. So you guys are going to try to pick this up with your elbows, right? And then you're going to take it back to those exit doors and bring it back here, put it back on the cone without it falling off. So if it can stay up. Yeah, just the ball, not the cone. Yeah. Yeah, just grab the, the basketball. You're going to take it back to the exit signs, bring it back up here, and get it on. Oh, he's going. You better go, man. <laughs> Get going. Come on. <laughs> and then whoever can get it to stay on the cone. That's really the hard part is getting it to stay on the cone. Right? Almost. It's really close. Oh, Travis has got it. Travis has got it. Can you get it? Let's see if you can get it. Yeah. So there's a price to pay for those loopholes. It makes everything harder. But again, so these, these Pharisees are just, they're, they're making up rules, right? And they're trying to find loopholes of doing what they want to do and yet still following God's law, you know? So they had all these laws that they were trying to get everybody to do. So in, in Mark, Jesus teaches the Pharisees even more bluntly than he does in this passage. So Mark 2, 27, Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So let's unpack that for a second. So the Sabbath was made for man. So when God created everything, he did it in six days, right? And then on the seventh day, he did what? He rested. Did he need to rest? No. <laughs> he did it because he wanted to set the example for us, that rest is important, and that as humans, we actually need that desperately. And then the opposite is true, that uh, man was not made for the Sabbath, Man was not made to worship this rule book or this, this, this thing other than God, right? We weren't meant to worship that. We were meant to worship God. So they got distracted, and Sabbath was way more important than it needed to be. Mark 7, 7, he also says, They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. So they were taking human commands and making them as important or more important than what God had told them to do. That's religion, right? <laughs> that's, that's following more than what the Bible tells you to do. So <clears throat> they were commanded in Exodus and Leviticus to practice things like this, like Shemitah, which is to let the land rest on the seventh year uh, when you're farming. And the purpose of that was to both live off of the previous six years harvest and allow it to provide for the, the poor and they can eat off of that. And also it allows the land to rest because it needs that in order to flourish. So there was a purpose for what God had intended. And they kind of perverted it and made it what they wanted it to be. The Pharisees saw the Sabbath as an opportunity to gain more control. 
writing new laws, and, and they made them, those laws made them just that much holier than the people around them, right? It gave them that much more pride that they were in the right. <clears throat> in their pursuit of structure and to fill in the gaps in the law, they forgot to humbly defer to God's authority. So Jesus made a point of humbling them often <laughs> while he was here on earth. Specifically, Jesus did this by healing on the Sabbath often, like he did in this passage. There wasn't a specific law against healing on the Sabbath, mainly on account of there wasn't a whole lot of healings going on around this time. Or for saving your son or ox from a well, for that matter. Uh, but they probably started making plans after this, if you can kind of run with my imagination here. They probably started making plans right after this to add those things into law. So like right after God was, or right after Jesus was like, Oh, would you go and pull your ox from the, oh, we got to write that one down, you know. Like, and, and also, oh, healings, we can't do that. If we make it a, a rule, then he won't be able to do it, you know. So they probably just added these things in. I'm just speculating. But <clears throat> that was kind of the heart that they had. So Jesus wasn't in violation of God's law. He was just poking holes at the man-made traditions that they had become so addicted to, Right? And then he continues humbling them here in verse 7. So let's continue reading in Luke 14, verse 7. He told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves, he said this. He said, when you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't sit in the place of honor because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. The one who invited both of you may come and say to you, Give your place to this man, and then in humiliation you will proceed to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. You will then be honored in the presence of all, your other guests, of all the other guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the one who had invited him. When you, give lunch, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back, and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So our second point here is that Jesus calls us to humility. He's calling the Pharisees to humility. He's also calling us to this, if we look at this passage well. So when we look at humility, there's a lot of ways that you can define it, right? You can go to Webster and all that, and, but there are tons of definitions, and we're just going to look at Scripture to define it for us, right? So in Philippians, Paul calls us to humility by commanding here in Philippians 2, verse 3. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. More importantly, though, Jesus himself defined it in action by taking the act of humility onto himself of washing his disciples' feet. So we're going to talk about that for a little bit. Um, so... When Jesus washed their feet, this was at Passover time. I don't know if you knew this. It was at Passover, and that same night that he would be betrayed by Judas. 
so what I didn't know is until I, I looked into it a little bit more, John 12, the, the chapter before it details how in the week leading into Passover, these things happen to glorify Jesus leading up to that moment of humility. So <clears throat> the, the first thing that happened there was that Mary uh, poured out all of her oil onto Jesus and dried that off with her hair, right? So she anointed his feet with her hair in Bethany, which I don't know if you know anything about Bethany, but that was where he raised Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus was very well known in that area already. So his name is being uh, raised up in that moment. Then he was also welcomed with palm branches at the triumphal entry not long after that. So what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, right? You put the palm branches on the ground, everybody's saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And then those same people are the people that sacrificed him on the cross later, right? And then the last thing is that God himself chimed in on Jesus' greatness. I, I don't know if I had known this one before studying it. So John 12, 27 through 30 says this. Now, this is Jesus talking. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. So these, these three instances are Jesus being brought up to the highest place, right? He's being lifted up as higher than any other prophet, right? It's, he is God. And what does he do in response? That week, not just days later, after he was exalted three times, he chose to show us what humble servant leadership looks like by washing his disciples' feet. Now, if you don't know anything about that, it's disgusting. <laughs> it was a job that was made for your slave, uh, your slave to do, that person that is there to do the worst tasks. Because these guys are walking out in the dust, and they're wearing sandals, and they get disgusting. And until they come into the house... They don't wash their feet. <laughs> so once they get to the house, they have all this muck and mire and grossness within their feet and between their toes and stuff. So God, God himself <laughs> humbled himself to the point of washing 12 grown men's feet. I don't know if you smelled your dad's feet lately, but it's probably even worse than that because he at least washes his feet often, hopefully. Um, but there's 12 grown men, and he's, he's washing their feet. And those men, not only is it a disgusting act, look at the relationship that he has with these men. Peter would deny him three times that week. Thomas would doubt Jesus even after the resurrection. And the worst of all, Judas would betray him to the Pharisees. He would give him up to be sacrificed on the cross, to be crucified. So, like so many things in Scripture, there's this tension between balance and humility. So let's, let's talk about that for a little bit. So, <clears throat> humility has this balance between shame and freedom. So, when you sin, you can either loathe yourself and just wallow in that self-hate and, and bring that shame, which is actually veiled 
it's a veiled form of pride disguised as humility because it's saying that what Jesus did on the cross isn't enough for you. It's saying what Jesus did to take on all of humanity's sin, well, that didn't cover this one sin. I'm going to hold on to this one, and I'm going to beat myself up for it. No, that's not humility. And, and humility also isn't taking this freedom. You know, the opposite of shame would be freedom then. And we are called to live in freedom because Jesus bought that for us on the cross, but we can definitely run too far with that into sinning because we have fire insurance, right? So Jesus died on the cross for us. We're good to go. I can do whatever I want now. I've accepted Jesus. Now I can do what I want. And I would seriously question that person's heart in the first place on whether or not they accepted Jesus, but that's a whole other thing. Um, The next thing here is that there's a balance between discovery and submission. So in today's day and age, we have science and faith at odds, right? So we, everybody feels like they have got it all figured out, or at least they're almost there, right? And the fact of the matter is that we won't ever learn everything there is to know about anything. I'll say that again. We won't ever learn everything there is to know about anything, and it's the way God designed it. God will always limit our discovery to keep us humble, like he did with the Tower of Babel, where they thought that they could build this tall tower, and God said, I'm going to humble you right now and disperse you across the world by changing your languages and, and confusing your speech. So God humbled them in that, and he humbles us now of not letting us discover absolutely everything. But he's also placed a burning desire in some of us to figure out how daddy did it, right? There are scientists in the world that are God-fearing scientists, right? And they want to figure out how God did what he did. How does this design work? And God puts that burning desire on them, and they're passionate about it for a reason. It's to bring him glory in the process, not us. So when you find that discovery, it's to show, look how awesome God is. Look at how intricate this thing is that God made. That's what humility looks like within discovery. And then the last thing here is that there's a, a balance between being right and pursuing unity. Now, in the heat of some of the controversy in our country over the past few years, Chip Gaines, anybody know Chip Gaines, Chip and JoJo from Fixer Upper? Yeah, these guys? So <laughs> Chip Gaines uh, responded to some criticism that he had received by essentially saying that he and his wife, Joanna, are often not on the same page, and they actually disagree on particular issues. And that if he and his wife can't even agree, like the picture of unity in, in a God-fearing marriage, like if, if Chip and JoJo can't even agree, he understands that it would be nearly impossible for people around the country to agree on anything, let alone everything. And the same could be said, though, of the body of Christ. Because so often we put being right in front of pursuing unity as a church. Sometimes we pursue this one doctrine and and it causes these denominations to split on what we've talked about before as being more of a rib issue than a spine issue, right? Spine issue is like something that you you can't go back on that because it's something that is related to Jesus on the cross or Jesus resurrected and the gospel. Like, we cannot go off on those. But there are things that, even though we have the truth of God in our hands that we can read on a daily basis, 
that gives us truth when the world has no truth and instead lets anybody define what it is. We have truth on paper because it's the word of God. Even then, we look at the word of God and people that love Jesus and they fear Jesus, they fear the word, and they look at this and they disagree on things. And we can either agree to disagree and continue to do ministry together, or we can decide to go separate ways. And God calls us to different things in those moments, and he allows those things to happen certain times for a reason. But there's that balance, right, between being right and pursuing unity. How much are we going to uh, be willing to die on this hill, right? In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not in persuasive, with persuasive words or wisdom, of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So he's saying, even, even Paul doesn't claim to know everything or understand everything as black and white. The only hill that he chooses to die on is Christ and him crucified. Because he knows that any other truth is going to have to come through the Spirit, right? Not his opinion, not his flesh. And God honored that attitude of humility by utilizing Paul, who used to be Saul, who would kill Christians like it was his job, utilize Paul to write most of the New Testament. That's how God honored that humility in that man and chose to make his own, make God's name great through him. So let's finish up here, starting in verse 14. Sorry, 15. Luke 14, verse 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he told him, a man was given, giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, come, because everything is now ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a field. I must go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm, I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I just got married, and therefore I am unable to come. It sounds like ways of getting out of a date, right? <laughs> like if you are on a bad date and you're just like, oh, I have hockey practice. I need to go. Or, <laughs> uh, or I don't know, a, a prominent senator is, is in need of my assistance or something, and then you just leave. Like these are terrible excuses. Let's continue on it in, in verse 21 here. It says, so the servant came back and reported these things to his master. Then in anger, the master of the house told his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, maimed, blind, and lame. Master, the servant said, what you ordered, me has, what you ordered has been done, and there's still room. Then the master told the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those people who are invited will enjoy my banquet. Now, great crowds were traveling with him, Jesus, 
So he turned to, so he turned and said to them, "If anyone com- comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise." After he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king, going to war against another king, will not first sit down and decide if he, has, if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now, salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. All right, this will be our last point here. Last point is that submission and humility is exciting. Let's put that up. Is it frozen? There we go. Awesome. All right. Humility is exciting. Jesus wants us to get excited about the opportunity to serve with him. That's what that whole passage was about. To have a seat at the table with Jesus when he calls us to bear our cross and follow him, we should get excited about that. Imagine if you had an opportunity to play three-on-three with Michael Jordan on your team or start a business with Elon Musk as not just your advisor but also your sole financial investor. Or better yet, if you wanted to learn to paint and you learned to paint with Bob Ross himself. (laughs) Rest in peace. Um, Being able to do ministry with Jesus is a dream, whether we recognize it or not, and we should treat it as such. He wants us to abandon all of our distractions. So the things we talked about before, right, our pride, our shame, our need to be right. He wants us to abandon these things amongst everything else in order to pursue him and pursue his mission. He calls us to set aside prideful distraction and focus our attention and worship on Christ and his purposes. He wants us to count the cost. Now, in that, in that passage, we'll, we'll just read that again. Um, verse 26 here, it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, hate in that is likely hyperbole or an exaggeration to make a point in this passage. It's more about fulfilling the first commandment, right? What's the first commandment? That we are to have no other gods before him. Family was everything in that culture, so he used the most important thing. What's that most important thing to you? What's that thing that you won't compromise on, that if God asked for that, you wouldn't give it up? What are our distractions and our excuses What have you convinced yourself that you need more than Jesus? 
Jesus also made sure to mention that following him would not be easy. It will be painful. He promises us that several places. <laughs> and if it's not painful, then you're probably doing it wrong. And you may have lost your saltiness, right? Which can be your passion, your conviction, your, your zeal, your purpose, your vision, your excitement. To get that saltiness back, it's very simple. Just humble yourself. If anyone has any right to be prideful, it's Jesus, right? In fact, he is the only one who deserves to be worshipped, but instead he humbled himself. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says this. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he, humbled, he, hum, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Guys, Jesus humbled himself with the purpose of redeeming the undeserving, us, so that we can live in awe of him at his right hand forever, doing ministry with him. He's all we need. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this word. Thank you for showing us that we don't need anything but you and that following you should be exciting. There shouldn't be anything else that we should look at and be like, oh, I'd rather do that. No, God, you are worth following. You are worth pursuing. And you've pursued us and showed us what pursuit looks like, what humility looks like. So God, as we continue to worship today, Help us to see that for what it is, that you came to earth, the God of the universe. You came to earth as a human, and not only that, you chose to die the most shameful, painful death possible and take on all of our sin, separating you from God, from that perfect union that you have with him for us and for your glory. God, help us to join you in that mission. Help us to realize that all we need is you. Pray these things in your name. Amen. You guys want to stand with us and we'll sing this last song together.